Welcome to the Wander Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Francis Tapon. In this episode, I interview David Green, who is the author of a new book called Hitler's War in North Africa, 1941 to 1942. In it, we cover a lot of the details of the book and what war was like in North Africa. I'm keenly interested in this because, of course, I'm writing my book about Africa, and so I'm interested in what went on in World War II in the North Africa. And also, we talked about North Africa today and whether World War III is imminent. So we cover a lot of different topics, and it's a fascinating conversation with this historian who is in Australia. And we talk about how does an Australian get interested in World War II in North Africa. This episode was sponsored in part by my patrons at patreon.com slash ftapon. Join and become a member so that you can get rewarded for supporting this podcast. Before we dive into all uh, World War II and North Africa, and eventually we're going to end with talking about North Africa today, let's first start start off with your uh, background yourself. Um, Tell me a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in North Africa. What were you doing before that? As a child, I grew up watching television, movies, and so forth, and building model airplanes and tanks. And I guess I always had a fascination with the the war that was in North Africa. You grew up in Australia, correct? That's correct, yes. So, <laughs> this is what is so incomprehensible. You're a child in Australia, and you got interested in North Africa and the war going on there and the activities going on there. Why? I mean, it would seem to me that an Australian child would be interested in the war in the Pacific during World War II, right? Exactly, and... If I may, um, I guess my first encounter with the, the Second World War was my father grew up in a country town in, in the state of Victoria, and there were American soldiers billeted with him. And I, I remember being, oh boy, younger than 10, and I was asking, why? what were the Americans doing in a country town in Melbourne, Australia? And of course, this was after the Battle of uh, um, Guadalcanal. And oh. so the more I read... And then I learned that the Australians were in North Africa. And to me, that seemed incredible. Like, what, what were Australians doing <laughs> fighting the Italians in North Africa? And, of course, this was before the Japanese had entered the, um, the war. And so I guess the, the, um, the concept of a global war came to be, and, and it was a world war. And so the, in a roundabout sort of a way, it was like, well, Australians were here. They're also in England in Bomber Command and, and so forth. So... The more I, I read, the more I became intrigued behind the, the Australian story in North Africa. Fascinating. So I want to read just a very short excerpt of chapter one of your book where you say, kind of summarize the book in, to some extent. And you said, when marching through the desert heat with burning throat and blistered feet, and uh, the, you didn't actually say this was anonymous, but it, I love the quote. Uh, when marching through the desert heat with burning throat and blistered feet amid choking dust and blinding sand, you cursed the day you saw this land. <laughs> and that is a summary of what it's like to trek across the Sahara Desert. I've, I've actually had the fortune of going all over the Sahara. I went from Morocco down to Mauritania and then on to Senegal, which crossed the west coast of the Sahara. Then I also went to the Ayer Mountains of Niger, and then, which is in kind of like the middle of Sahara, I also went to the tallest mountain of 
Chad and the tallest mountain of Libya, which is right on the Libya-Chad border. And then I also uh, went all the way down to southern Egypt where it meets Sudan. Anyway, so I've seen basically a lot of the Sahara. And I read your book with great interest because it just describes some of the conditions that these soldiers had to face. And it truly was utterly incredible. What was the things that kind of took you aback? Having, I imagine you've seen the Australian outback. And so I imagine there's some similarities there. I've never been to the outback, though. Oh, you must come. I'd love to host you because it's this wonderful, desolate wasteland, as indeed is the Western Desert of, um, of North Africa. And I think for a lot of Australians and, and also for a lot of German soldiers, their, their ideals of the desert was pretty much summed up or, or it was through the lens of a Hollywood movie of palm trees and uh, camels and oases and so forth. So when they arrived in the desert, it came as a really rude, nasty shock. And I think... Uh, for many, for many soldiers, the desert was a hot place, but uh, not realizing that in winter it, it's terribly cold. It's cold. Yes. It's, <laughs> it's freezing at night, yes. and, and so on the one hand, there were no palm trees once they left the, the coastal ports. There was um, there were dust storms that sometimes raged for days. Uh, it could be blisteringly hot during daytime and freezing at nighttime. And then over and above that, um, all sorts of disease, and and it really was not a pleasant place to 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 live, nor f- indeed fight a war. And I think that was a shock. And I think for many um, of the Germans, they became homesick because the distances were so vast, about any any sort of visible um, landmarks, if you like, because there were just these vast horizons in which they had there was no um, landmarks. And so they were fighting across these planes that were effectively worthless. Right. <laughs> Which is so paradoxical. You know, it's like we're investing all this machinery and all this manpower and lives to, to fight for sand. It just seems so paradoxical. Which then brings up my one of my key questions to you. Which is, why was... I know that one of the main reasons that the Axis, the Germans and the Italians, were going for uh, into North Africa was to control the Suez Canal. And I understand the strategic importance of the Suez Canal because it allows for uh, petroleum and all that other and goods to to travel across. But why was that more interesting than Gibraltar, the the mouth of the Mediterranean Sea? Okay, so I, I guess to answer that question is to take a step back and um, understand why the Axis were in North Africa and why they were fighting for Egypt. And at the very beginning, the Axis alliance, the two parties. It was there were uneasy bedfellows for one of a better term. In fact, there was an American historian who coined the access arrangement a, a hollow alliance, if you like. Um, the Mediterranean was under Mussolini's sphere of influence. He wanted to establish a new Roman Empire, if you like. Hitler looked to the east. He wanted to expand into Russia um, for Lebensraum, living room for the German people. And so it was only by default when Mussolini. Um, invaded Egypt and then was taken back by General Wavell's um, coalition army or practically to Tripoli that the Germans had to intervene to save Mussolini's skin, if you like, because if, if Tripoli had fallen, then the Axis partnership may have been in jeopardy, Mussolini may have been ousted from power. And so from the very beginning, North Africa was always just a secondary theatre. Um, Germany's focus was always going to be in the East. 
And so Rommel arrived to sort of shore up the, uh, the defences around Tripoli and to sort of um, safeguard um, the Italians there. He was a brash, bold um, tactician who saw uh, the opportunity and, and, and started to uh, branch out towards Egypt. And, you know, the rest, as we know, uh, is history so far as he, he uh, the lure of the Nile, I, I guess, um, was in his eyes. And so he sought the, um, the Suez Canal as well. But at the same time, this is always a secondary theatre. And I think um, Gibraltar um, was attractive as it was. The Suez Canal was also attractive, but this is always a secondary theatre. And it wasn't until, uh, I guess, maybe the conquests in Russia were going in Germany's favour that suddenly attention was placed momentarily on um, the conquest of North Africa, maybe even into Arabia and so forth. But it, this was very, very short-lived. But I still don't understand. Okay, I understand it's a secondary theatre. That's evident. And Rommel, who was the distinguished German general... He who went down there, did he have any choice about which direction to go once he got to Libya and took over Tripoli? Did he could he have gone west and go to Gibraltar instead of going east to Suez Canal, or was that was there a obvious reason why he had to go to Suez Canal, or was it just a romantic notion that I want to conquer Egypt and its pyramids, kind of like it's following the tradition of Napoleon and the, the Roman uh, uh, people um, who, who uh, the Roman emperors. Sure. I, look, I, I think it was the he had the romantic guise of the uh, let me say the lure of the Nile um, that was strong, and there was the opportunity to push the British back, and the British were in Egypt because it was under it was a protectorate. Um, Gibraltar obviously was a thorn because it guarded the entrance into the Mediterranean, and there were actually plans drawn up for the German invasion of Gibraltar. It was uh, Operation Felix, and Hitler unsuccessfully tried to woo uh, Francisco Franco, the, the Spanish dictator, into joining the war, but to no avail. And, and Franco made it bluntly clear that he was not about to um, enter into the Second World War. And so those plans were thwarted. And so Rommel um, saw the opportunity to sort of push east. And so you know, Cairo was within his sights and he, he certainly came close. Um, like, um, El Alamein is only what, 60 miles from, from Alexandria or so. So he, he certainly came close, but he never had the manpower, the, uh, the equipment, the fuel, the, the resources in which to sustain such a push. And so sure, Gibraltar, they realized that was um, strategically important. So was Malta. And probably after Tobruk fell in 1942, it was a huge mistake in the Germans not neutralizing um, the island of Malta, which was this, this unsinkable uh, little aircraft carrier, if you like, in the, in the center of the, um, in the Mediterranean. So, but why then not go straight to Egypt with your boats and ships? Because for the Germans and for that matter, the Italians, they need to cross the Mediterranean in order to get to Libya. So if you're going to cross the Mediterranean to get to Libya, I understand. OK, let's set aside Malta for the second. I mean, I think that that's a separate issue. But let's just uh, for those who don't know, Malta is an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. So let's let's just assume that they could have taken those boats and gone straight to Alexandria, which is the port city in Egypt that is touching the Mediterranean Sea. Why did they have to first hit Libya? Why not just go straight for Alexandria and Egypt with their ships and then invade from there? Okay, that's, that's an interesting question. I, I guess um, 
just in bringing supplies to the, the main Libyan ports of Tripoli or Benghazi, uh, the predominantly Italian fleet had to run the blockade of um, the Royal Navy. And there were also um, the Royal Air Force in Malta. So to, to take a fleet which would have required, I guess, an amphibious capability, which Germany really did not have, would be to sail through past Gibraltar past Malta, and then once they got to Alexandria, there was a major Royal Naval um, base there. And so I guess the, the odds were not in their favour to, to, to be able to mount any sort of operation, which at the end would have been, um, they would have faced the, the Royal Navy. So it would have been a difficult undertaking. The, uh, the Italian Navy was always strung, well, it was hampered by a, oh, a shortage of fuel oil, and once again, the German Navy, its focus was elsewhere. And so they had enough trouble just taking the shortest route from, say, Naples to Tripoli, let alone the passage past Malta into the, the jaws of the Royal Navy, who are based at Alexandria itself. I see. Okay. That's, well, that, that's good, uh, well, a good explanation. Now, David, can you explain to me something that surprised you in all your research? This is a very well-researched book. And again, it's about Hitler's war in North Africa from uh, 1941 to 1942. So tell us a little bit about what in your research kind of, because you probably already knew already a lot before you got started, but there's some things that you kind of surprised you. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, I guess the more you delve, delve into firsthand accounts, the more you realize the savagery and the horror and the brutality of war, because I guess once again in my childhood, growing up in the 70s and and reading these books that venerated the North African campaign as more or less an adventure. Um, it was seen as the, uh, uh, boy, almost like a romantic war, war of chivalry, if you like. The movies at the time with James Mason and so forth playing the Desert Fox, the image I had compared to what I read was, was so totally different. And so I, I gained an understanding that this was a war. Sure, the brutality was not on the scale of the Eastern Front, um, but it was a brutal war with armies locked, locked in battle out to, to, to kill each other effectively. And so I didn't realize that there are um, concentration camps that the Italians run and that Jews were actually persecuted and sent from, from Libya into some of the concentration camps in, in, uh, in, U in greater Germany. And I also didn't realize the extent um, around the Battle of El Alamein in 1942 that um, the British were experimenting in giving their troops some um, amphetamines. Like I was aware that the Germans used amphetamines uh, in the invasion of France in 1940, but I certainly didn't realize that the, the British had introduced, or Montgomery had introduced amphetamines um, as a potential pharmacological advantage before the Battle of El Alamein um, in October 1942. Yeah, the, the, all those things you mentioned, I didn't realize either. That's fascinating. And just to talk about the graphic nature of the war, there's one poignant part of your book that I'll just quote right now. Uh, you're quoting, I, I believe, another soldier, men hanging halfway out of the tanks with their legs blackened, and these dropped off when we pulled the bodies free. Heaps of gooey black stuff inside the tanks, and these heaps had been men. It, it's horrific. Yeah. And you know, once again, I, I grew up um, in Australia with a lot of um, ex-soldiers refusing to talk about the war. And 
because I, I, as this, I guess, naive youngster, wanted to learn more. But it was always, look, Uncle, uh, Uncle Freddie doesn't really like to talk about it, or Uncle Bob, those experiences, he sort of, he would rather not go there. And it's only now that I realise what they endured and what they saw was absolutely horrific. And so now I can understand their motive for, I don't want to talk about the war. And um, and so it was a very stoic generation and a lot of a lot of these soldiers took their memories to the graves but fortunately um in accessing these diaries and, and these first-hand accounts we can build a picture of what the desert war was really like right and there was another passage that actually surprised me as i mentioned i've been i have significant experience in the sahara desert and it says I quote you, the desert was an unforgiving setting where simple scratches, grazes, or insect bites were easily infected. These were called desert sores, as they were known. That's interesting, you know, because I never was careful about that when I was trekking around. I was climbing mountains. I was trying to climb the tallest mountain of every African country. And I suppose I just wasn't exposed for a long enough time period and I think that's probably what eventually gets you, right? I think so. And I also, uh, I read that it may have been um, eight weeks between baths. Like there was a ra- such a, a minuscule ration of water. So men couldn't wash. Sometimes they couldn't shave for weeks on end. Uh, a bath was an absolute luxury. Um, at the same time, the, the, there was a plague of flies. So the smallest cut was so easily infected. And so the, the hygiene was a huge problem. And I think uh, something else I learned was at certain times, there were more casualties, i.e. men out of operation, not so much through uh, uh, um, injuries or so forth, but stricken with disease. And, and and these armies are rife with disease. And um, I think that sort of runs also counter to a lot of the visions that we have of this romantic war on the desert across these rolling sand dunes when you've got these men who are either stricken with um, uh, hepatitis, or diarrhea, um, or these infected sores all over their legs. So it's really quite a horrific thing to think about. Absolutely. And another thing that's horrific that I had ne- never imagined was the idea of an airplane coming down to attack you while you're in the desert. As you point out, clear air and a dearth of cover, conversely, made aerial attacks deadly. And of course, it makes complete sense. You're just sitting out there, you're exposed in the desert. There's no tree you can hide underneath. There's no rock that's going to protect you most of the time. There are parts that are rocky in the Sahara, but the bottom line is you're just exposed. And all of a sudden, these you know, planes can come in and just strafe you and just drop bombs without mercy, without any kind of way to protect yourself. You're just a sitting duck, literally. You are a sitting duck. And I think um, I read accounts that the Australian soldiers were advised to dig a slit trench at any opportunity for this particular purpose. And of course, as you point out, there were parts of the desert that were rock you just could not put a, a pick into the soil and sometimes they found out where the desert rats had um, burrowed in into various crevices or things which led them to sort of see that where the sand was soft but to your point uh, there's this rocky um surface where you're, you're you're a sitting duck in the open right right um if there's one message that you would like people to learn from your book uh what would that be i think um we touched upon the uh how um, the horror of war, and I, I think it needs. We need to remind ourselves just how barbaric it is, and we're in a stage today where 
there's potential um, uh, there could be World War Three in our lifetime, I guess, is where I'm headed. Um, I look at, I read the news reports, and I think we need to be reminded just how awful war is. And for the younger generation who play these video games and so forth, I think you really need to read what it's like to have been there. And I, I, if anything, this book's an anti-war book. Um, and if I can sort of bring that sort of realization, um, I've succeeded. Yes, and you certainly have in the book. There's one passage that also really struck me hard. I quote you, Petrol was sometimes more abundant than water for the British troops, who used the volatile fuel to cook with, even to wash clothes and equipment, though at a cost. And the cost was that those clothes would eventually disintegrate if you keep washing it with petrol. I'm like, that's just like incredible. Here's what I don't understand is like, I wouldn't even want to wash it with petrol. I mean, I'd rather have it be dirty than if there's no water. Okay, I understand. But then why wash it with petrol? Is it just that? Is it is it still better to wash it with petrol than to not wash it? <laughs> I guess driven like necessity is the, the mother of invention. And um, just with this, this paucity of water, there was, there was no alternative. And so... It, to have to use petrol, it's it's incredible, and there are all sorts of wounds and, and burns um, with these uh, makeshift stoves. Because what sometimes the soldiers would do was um, to to say brew a, a kettle of tea, they'd pour petrol into the sand and light it, and so it was this uh, um, this burner which was <laughs> obviously fraught with danger. But you know, washing your clothes with petrol, no, thank you. But <laughs> what alternative was there? Right. And now, how did uh, the German general Rommel finally die. Okay, so in 1944, he was placed in charge of the uh, the D-Day um, invasion defenses along the uh, the Normandy coast, and he was um, wounded in a um, a strafing uh, uh, incident, and he was in hospital. And I, I believe he'd written to uh, to Hitler to sort of try and seek some sort of negotiation with the Allies. And he certainly you know, forecast that the end was um, was nigh for the Third Reich. And um, after the July 20 bomb uh, plot to assassinate uh, Adolf Hitler, um, during the interrogation of one of the conspirators, Rommel's name came to light. And so he uh, duly received a um, uh, a party of uh, Gestapo um, officers who, who visited his home and the choice was given to him. On one hand, you can face a court, a public court for treason, which would have been a kangaroo court. He would have been found guilty or you could um, commit suicide. So he chose to take his own life. He, he took cyanide. Um, publicly, the announcement was made, I think, that he either died from a heart attack or that um, he had a stroke. Right, because he was a hero. He was a hero. So he, he was given a hero's death. Um, Hitler proclaimed a, a day of national mourning. And so it was only after the war when American authorities interviewed his son, Manfred, and his, his wife that the truth sort of came out that this, is, um, this led to his death. Uh, this is why he chose suicide, and um, and it, it, it's an interesting one because, as a consequence, he became like the, the good general, the good Nazi, because he um, he chose suicide rather than um, you know uh, face this this court, and also he was part of the conspiracy to overthrow Adolf Hitler. 
Was he really part of that conspiracy? Is that definitive? I know this is a little bit off topic of your book, but because your book kind of ends when he's right at the gates of Cairo and he is not able to punch through. Um, But what do you think? Yeah, it's a very interesting question, Francis. Um, I believe that once, obviously, Germany's um, fortunes on the Eastern Front were, were doomed and once the Allied forces landed in Normandy, Germany was in a no-win situation, and every German officer knew that a two-front war was absolutely futile. In case, in this instance, it was probably a three-front war because the Allies, the Americans, were also pushing up through Italy. And so, in, in this hopeless situation, I can certainly see him, Rommel, and at the beginning of the war, he was, um, yeah, very much in in Hitler's good books and. and I think he saw no alternative than to seek an end to this war, which was, it was a foregone conclusion that Germany was to end up in ruins. Got it. Okay. Now, what do you think of present day North Africa? Do you, are you hopeful about the situation in those five uh, North African countries or do you find the situation more hopeless or, or some combination? I think, Ten years ago, when the political and economic conditions that led to the Arab Spring, and I think the whole world watched to see where this would go, and, and here we are 10 or 11 years later, I'm not really sure the conditions have changed that much. Maybe in, in, in Tunisia, and I value your input, um, Francis, because I think uh, we're all we were awaiting a good news story, and I don't think that good news story has really happened. As a sideline, I think it was April this year when they were moving the mummies from the, the museum in Cairo to this other dedicated museum in, in, in Cairo, I believe it was. And so this, um, this amazing procession was held and the world was looking at Egypt and it was a good news story. And it gave me hope that um, over time, hopefully things will, will work out. But at the same time, I don't know, like Libya has probably regressed. Um, Anyway, I look back 10 years ago with with a lot of hope. I think my hopes are being dashed. Yeah, I think a a lot of people have felt the same way. I mean, certainly the Arabs themselves who dominate North Africa are very much disillusioned. There was an incredible amount of hope during the Arab Spring and to a large extent, pretty much every single country is currently, as Obama called uh, Libya, a shit show. And it's you could call the entire North African region a shit show, except for perhaps Morocco, which is relatively stable at the moment. But uh, who knows, that can turn also. But the other way to look at it is that maybe Libya has hit the nadir, it's at its lowest point, and now it can only get better, I mean, potentially. So it's, it's hard to imagine Libya getting worse but of course <laughs> anything's possible um speaking about things getting worse you kind of alluded to world war three now some people think that the age of great wars and world wars are over but the history of humanity kind of points to the fact that maybe wars are just part of the human condition and that a global conflagration given our interconnectedness is inevitable what do you think? Oh, there's a quote I think I heard, I read recently that what we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. <laughs> and and I, I look at a map and I, I look, there's, for a start, there's, there's Korea, which is a rogue state. 
I look at Iran and there's the in the, the American Iran issue. And then I look at Iran and Israel. And then I look towards Kashmir and I look at India and Pakistan. But I think um, the issue that or the um, the country that keeps me awake at night is the um, is China and um, Xi Jinping's desire by 2050 to um, to bring Taiwan back into the fold as part of the one um, one nation policy or, or something, um, and he's made it abundantly clear that um, he will take back Taiwan, and he's threatened Australia with uh, ballistic missile strikes on military installations should Australia intervene. He's threatened Japan with um, a nuclear strike should the Japanese intervene. Um, and is this any different to the the build-up of um, armaments by Nazi Germany during the 1930s? Um, I don't know. I do not get a good feeling. I think um, if there will be a showdown, it will be over Taiwan. And I, I think the free world will be um, like to think about the consequences. Right. And, but let's play that one out. Let's play out the scenario of the Chinese invading Taiwan, for example, or some, you know, some sort of crisis in the South China Sea. Where are Chinese, where is China's allies? That's one of the key questions, because I know the United States has Australia and many other countries as its allies that would come step in. You have NATO, of course. But China, it seems to have, it doesn't seem to have Russia completely in its back pocket either. Yeah, I totally agree. And I don't think the Chinese have been very successful in winning over friends lately. I think the um, the Belt and Road Initiative that they had, um, people or countries have seen through that as being, uh, what, in effect, a dead trap diplomacy um, mission. And I think China, to all intents and purposes, has all isolated itself in its, in, its, um, in its vision. But I think it's so strong in terms of its population size and the size of its military that um, as probably what Germany thought they could go it alone. I got it. Okay. So you think that it may get to their head because they, in fact, a lot of people don't know this, but most people think of the United States military being the most powerful military as far, sorry, it's the United States Navy, but actually at now China has more Navy ships than the United States, just number of ships. They don't, they have not exceeded the United States in tonnage, but they have exceeded in number of ships. The United States has barely 300 ships. And I think I can't, don't quote me on this, but I think China has over 400 or around 400 ships. Exactly. And I think we've all watched those um, isolated atolls that um, literally overnight were turned from, <laughs> uh, from a little atoll with seagulls or bird life into a, like effectively a, a landing strip for, for aircraft and then all, all sorts of military um, facilities. And these are fully fledged you know, aircraft carriers, if you like, that have been uh, formed out of the ocean and spattered throughout the, um, the area. And so uh, the, the resources they're pouring into this, this the rearmament and, and, and so forth, um, yeah, I think the world needs to sort of wake up and, 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 um, and look what, what's their motive? You know, why it's, it's certainly not defensive. Um, and I know I, I don't get a good feeling, um, Francis, about the next, say, 20 years. 
All right. On that sober note, yeah. I'll, I'll, it I'll is go a sober to, note. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave with an even more gruesome note. How about that? And I don't want to give the listeners and and those who are watching this on YouTube the wrong impression that your book is full of gore, but I do think I want to kind of put an exclamation point on your statement that this book is an anti-war book. And I'll just quote again another sailor, a, a soldier who said something. Th- flew past my head it was a leg with a boot on it a round of he which are high explosives had taken chalky white's leg off he was looking at me with astonishment and pointing to the raw bleeding stump with the white bone sticking through i went toward him with the idea of helping him i think just then the machine gun opened up and poor chalky got it full in the face. It's horrific. And I only hope that um, everyone who reads the book can sort of um, understand what war is like. And hopefully in our lifetime, in our children's lifetime, war is consigned to history books. Right. And your book does cover the history of North African war super well almost like a novel. And so I I found it very gripping. And again, I don't want to mislead people into thinking that it's just a gore fest. Not at all. Those uh, kind of gory passages take up less than 1% of the book, but they're very memorable. They hit you hard. And I think that's the point. But most of the book, in fact, is, you know, talks about the strategic battles and and the dilemmas and the challenges that both the Axis and the Allies faced in the tough, tough environment that is the Sahara Desert. Yeah, indeed. And I think um, uh, one thing which, which struck me time and time again was Rommel's disregard for his supply lines. And it was like his soldiers would say to him, where's the fuel for our trucks? And it would be like, well, go capture it. Or, And at certain times, the majority of the German army was reliant upon captured transport. Right. It's incredible, the innovation and 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 the fortitude that the Germans had, cer- certainly in contrast to the the poor Italians who just were uh, completely the opposite. <laughs> they seem they seem to really cave in so quickly. And then uh, I guess on on different levels, and as you say, um, it's not a gory book per se, but it, it's looking at um, I guess issues of leadership, um, strategy, um, um, why these armies were there, how they were there. And down to individual courage and, and, and bravery under these incredibly bad conditions. And the conditions they faced, like these, these sandstorms we mentioned, the, 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 the disease, the flies, the, uh, um, the floods at certain times. It really was not a, it was a horrible place to fight a war. And I, I guess if there was any upside was that there were very few civilian casualties because, once again, these tanks and these mechanized armies were swinging backwards and forwards across this arid wasteland. Right. What's your next book in you? Or do you have another book in you? Or are you kind of kaput? (laughs) Uh, uh, Well, actually, um, given that we're in lockdown, um, (laughs) I've got... (laughs) And this, there's a, an abundance of online archives. And so I'm lucky that I can work here and uh, I've got time that I can sort of keep myself occupied, which I think is important in times such as these. So what I'd like to do is build upon the firsthand accounts and the letters um, that were written at the time, because I think letter writing, it, it's a lost art. And some of the letters that were written at length 
to loved ones back home were, were quite extraordinary. So I think I'd like to explore that um, aspect more. Excellent. Now, how can people follow your explorations? Do you have a use Twitter or you have a website uh, or Facebook? I have a Facebook site um, under my pen name, which is David Mitchell Hill Green. Great. I'll put a link to to those uh, things on the show notes as well as a link to for people who want to buy it on Amazon or wherever so that they can find out more about your book, which is, again, highly recommended. And I, I wish you the best uh, for that. And that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember FTAPON. That's my first initial and my last name. FTAPON is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. And here's one last reason to remember FTAPON. If you like what I do and would like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash ftapon. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. And now for five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the Wander Learn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it somewhere. And five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.